and ride with me in my foul life. What's up, everybody? Welcome to the Foul Life Podcast Midwest Series. I'm your host, Joel Clayfish, located in the great state of Wisconsin in the greatest flyway on earth, nestled between the Mississippi River, the Great Lakes, and more inland lakes than any other state in the country. Today is, I'm super jacked about this because we have got somebody along today who is going to give us some insights that nobody gets. Taylor Finger was the migratory game bird ecologist, just got a promotion, I understand, to the game bird ecologist. So they lumped turkeys, rough grouse, and some other birds, pheasants probably into that as well. Taylor, this what a privilege, what a, a rare opportunity it is to have somebody who is so involved in waterfowl, uh, in the waterfowl industry, you know, working for the government, working hand in hand with those who are interested in conservation, those who are interested in hunting. Taylor, uh, thanks so much for coming by. I mean, you're just a wealth of knowledge and I can't wait to start picking at it. Welcome. Thanks, Joel. I really appreciate you having me here. So first off, I mean, you're, you're a young man and you are now the game bird ecologist for the entire state of Wisconsin. That is, uh, not only is that an awesome responsibility and we're going to get into when you have your interactions with the public and how the public uh, comments and opinions are all over the place. You're the funnel. You're the guy <laughs> who essentially helps decide bag limits, uh, locations, requirements, rules, regulations, but you are a waterfowl guy yourself. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, born and raised in central Wisconsin. And, you know, my first experience was being the decoy bag holder for my dad going out before I could hunt and making sure I was with the dogs, helping train dogs. So it was, we, I grew up uh, hunting ducks, uh, hunting geese, getting out, hunting pheasants with my dad. So yeah, it was uh, something that I just grew up into and became a passion and then fortunately became a profession. This is what I am talking about about who is needed to work in, in natural resources departments across the country and, and frankly around the world. Somebody who gets it, somebody who understands and has experienced waterfowl hunting. Now, I, I hunted, I started hunting later in life. It has become my vivid passion. I love everything about it. But how smart of a natural resources department to take someone who has an understanding, a love for it and a joy for it and put them in a position. Obviously, you have you know the degree, the education behind it. But how did you ever end up going from hey, I'm a hunter, I'm a waterfowl guy, into studying and wanting to learn the biology of waterfowl, and then end up working for the DNR? Which you know, people have their issues with the DNR. They have their issues with any government agency and government overreach. And I'm not going to say I'm exclusive to that. I, I, I agree with some of those issues. But tell me how that became education and then became your career path. Yeah, so it was one of those things where some of the best moments of my life were sitting in the marsh. And I was like, well, it would be pretty cool to make that something that I could do professionally. Like, this is what I really enjoy doing. And I think that there's something that I could contribute to it. So Went to Stevens Point, got my bachelor's at Stevens Point, and uh, I bounced around. I worked in uh, New Jersey. I worked in Minnesota. I was doing black duck and brant research on the East Coast, and then had the opportunity to move to Canada and get my master's degree uh, on uh, lesser scops. We put satellite transmitters inside lesser scop, and I tracked their migration, compared it to spring weather patterns to check to see how we were counting them in terms of when they were moving along with the spring and then when we were actually sending people to count those birds and whether or not our estimates were double counting or missing them all together. So I got I got my degree in that and I came back like came back to Wisconsin. I looked there was an assistant migratory game bird uh, ecologist position with Wisconsin DNR applied for it and I fortunately was able to get it. And then put your time in for, you know, a couple of years uh, as an LTE with the government and landed the full-time gig as the main migratory game bird guy. So it just was one of those ones where I everything has been waterfowl-centric in my entire life. And I lucked out into getting a job. I currently have a house four miles away from the home I lived in, where I, where I grew up in. So traveled all across the country doing a bunch of stuff to come back and be right next to home. Man, we could talk to you about an hour about every one of those things you said, 
because it is just fascinating. Migratory uh, development and changes of waterfowl is fascinating. When, what have you learned so far in doing this that's been most surprising to you or, or most interesting? So it, it, you usually get into these professions because you like the biology aspect of it, like this is what you're doing science. But the interaction with people has been one of those things that I just, I didn't, didn't really know what to expect. And it's become a huge part of my job is just, you're dealing with hunters, you're dealing with different aspects of what somebody wants over on the Mississippi river versus what somebody wants on a layout hunt in green Bay or somebody up in Ashland versus somebody down by Beloit. So there's just a lot, uh, a lot of interaction at public hearings and just what people don't know. Um, you know, we take for granted, this is what I immerse my life in. And then you talk to somebody and they're like, Hey, I had no idea about that. And so you get to educate the public and share that knowledge that you have. What's it like? Cause you are, you basically run these public hearings and I've been at these public hearings and, and, and waterfowlers, can, I mean, waterfowlers can be a contentious bunch. I'm not going <laughs> to lie to you. And somebody's got an idea that you should have a two week break or a three week break and the season should go longer or just when the birds are coming in, they're claiming the season's shutting down. A lot of these people come in and they got their, you are the target. <laughs> they got, they're drawn on you. And I, I've seen you do it. You've, you have a very a congenial way of kind of dispersing any of the frustration and explaining that one you know, person's opinion does not necessarily reflect the science, also has to be balanced with the desires of the hunting public and harvesting public. How do you do that? Because I've seen you up at the front and there'll be one guy and he's arguing with the guy next to him. And then they both look at you. It's uh, just making sure that you have that information that's available. It's not just hearsay. It's not, Oh, well, this is what I heard from somebody that told me something that heard from somebody else. You have the information in front of you and just recognizing and communicating to people that you are one of 70,000 people in the state of Wisconsin that are out there trying to do the same exact thing that you are. So recognizing that you may want something, but it may not represent what the majority of the hunters want. And fortunately for the last 25 years, our waterfall populations have been in really good shape. So a lot of these things are just social issues that we deal with, like how long or when the season should be, when we should, or if we should increase a bag limit on X, Y, and Z. I'll provide the information. We, we look, we do a lot of the research, we get the data. We share that, and then we leave it up for people to have those discussions amongst themselves. I don't want to be the one talking at people. I want to be talking with people. How often <clears throat> do you go with what the hunting public desires versus the science, or, or does the science have to go hand in hand? Or is there room, is there wiggle room for when hunters say, hey, look, we don't want to have to punch a tag in our wallet anymore and call a goose in. We've got enough of a population to sustain that. How often do you say, well, I'm sorry, science is going to win versus where I feel in Wisconsin, the hunting public who participates and now participates online and in person, I feel you guys, especially in recent years, have moved toward public desire uh, as being a very important part of where waterfowl hunting and regulations go. Right. So, I mean, historically, Wisconsin's been a very conservative hunting group in terms of, hey, we're going to take more restrictions just to based on the side of caution, but we have been using science to help us inform because we hear from hunters, we hear from people across the state that say, hey, we should be doing this, we should be doing this. And then what that does is it tells me and on our waterfall research guide to look and try to find this data to try to see is it supporting what we're hearing from hunters or if it's not. And what we've been finding over the last you know, five to 10 years, we liberalized a lot of things that we were very conservative on because people believed we needed to be conservative on rather than the science saying, Nope, you guys can go ahead and do that. We did that with the hen mallard bag limit. We the last uh, state in the country with a one hen mallard bag limit. We went and we looked at all the data, said, hey, we could definitely increase our hen mallard bag limit to two. So we did that. We asked the public, boom, across the board, field been very satisfied with it. Similar thing with Canada goose bag limits, Canada goose registration. Those were things that, you know, do we need to, you know, in the past 30 years ago, you know, it was uh, awesome to shoot one Canada goose. You got a goose per season if you're in the horicon area where now we're sitting at three canada goose a day do we need to they're becoming almost a point for a nuisance in some issues do we need to be registering those do we need to be tracking our harvest at that level and come to find out no it's what we have out there is doing an adequate job so yeah we we have relied on 
the input and information from the public to help drive what we need to be looking for in terms of science. Let me ask you a question because this is so great. I get you right here to ask the questions that come up in the field all the time. One thing that's very frustrating to goose hunters is when an area gets permission to oil eggs uh, and they're, they're killing that goose before it hatches. And hunters say, why not just up the bag limit and allow, allow us to kill more of them and put them on the dinner table? Because the goose that's never hatched is never ending up on a dinner table. Right. And this is, this is becoming a larger and larger issue that we see coming across the last couple of years is just nuisance Canada geese. It's one of those ones where from hunter or I mean from the public, they're like, well, I don't ever, I don't want you to kill that goose, but I don't ever want to see it again. So that's where we're at right now is, especially in urban areas, uh, U.S. Department of Ag uh, is the entity that uh, permits the oiling and addling of eggs, as well as the goose roundups. And that, I mean, with the population that we have, it's not a concern on the DNR's level with the actual goose population. We then rely on the U.S. Department of Ag to go ahead and take that over. So it's, we, USDA requires uh, a municipality or an entity to hold a public hearing to have, allow hunters to come in with those whenever they issue a permit for oiling or addling and, or, and then doing the goose roundup. So just recognizing that in a lot of cases where this is happening, those geese might never leave an area so they could be hunted. In some cases they can, in some cases they don't, but Huge areas like Milwaukee, uh, Madison, those geese aren't leaving, you know, the city limits. So they're causing problems. They're, you know, crapping on people's lawns, on the beaches. They're just becoming an issue. So taking care of those ahead of time, it doesn't cost nowhere near as much to oil or addle an egg as it does to actually bring somebody in to round up those birds to remove them. Sure, I get that. But that brings me to another topic, and that is the urban sprawl that we're seeing in every state in the country as subdivisions pop up they pop up very often in cornfields or wheat fields I mean, there's a spot i learned to hunt on the bob miller fields over by the piggly wiggly in oconomowoc I, I i drive by it and i look over and i say i used to hunt in that person's basement so we are seeing i mean there is this growing development which you're not going to stop. Human beings expand and they expand their footprint. So I think, or at least my opinion is, we're going to have to be more uh, allowing of urbanized or suburbanized types of hunting, which definitely require more care. Um, you know, some of these loads that people are shooting now, they're, they're, they have an impact up to 300 yards in some cases, depends where the wind's blowing. But how do we balance that and still allow? I mean, there are certain municipalities that still don't allow discharge of firearms. Is it time for the state to address allowing suburbanized or urbanized hunting as long as it's done in a safe way? I mean, I think there's definitely that opportunity to have those discussions with some of these places that, you know, it's definitely safe to do so. We have those discussions with like golf courses. Rather than rounding them up, say, hey, you know, people aren't out here golfing in October or whatever. You got a ton of birds that aren't leaving this spot. Let's, you know, take advantage of the situation and, you know, we can handle that rather than you having to pay money to USDA to come and round them up. You know, just invite some hunters out there on a controlled situation. And I think there are plenty of those other opportunities across the state. It's just having to have those discussions with those people and them being willing to think about it. Yeah, I know plenty of hunters who would be willing to volunteer their time and go hunt a golf course that's plagued by geese. And part of, part of the problem is in certain scenarios in urban situations and suburban situations, it's literally not legal because of an ordinance that's on the books that in many cases may contradict uh, the state's uh, Range Protection Act, but they've never been tested in the courts and nobody wants to be the first one to get the ticket to go test it in the court and pay the money to be represented up into the Supreme Court. But I think we need, I think we need an expanded dialogue because there is nothing more frustrating to the, the community of people who live a provider lifestyle where they go out. I mean, during goose season, my family eats goose uh, lunch and dinner uh, five, six days a week, and we love it. And there are points at which I'm, you know, every time I harvest a goose, I have a running tally on my freezer because I don't want to go over my possession limit. And, and that's, 
you know, I can't keep, I eat geese so quickly in this family that I can't keep enough geese that get me through the summer till the next, I'm out of geese. I mean, I think I have one bag that I'm saving if someone says, tell, show me how to make this amazing goose everybody talks about. But I think, do you think we need to look at possession limits too in that equation? Because there's nobody, nobody's, the person who goes out to, to kill the goose and takes the effort to breast the goose out, put the fillets in a bag, freeze them and put them in their freezer. They are not wanton wasting that goose. They're, they're putting that goose in the freezer to eat it. And now you've got a three-day possession limit, which is also extremely confusing to some people because you have a different possession limit for the five-day per, per day uh, early season and then the three-day per day uh, regular season. So do we have to start looking at things like that? Because there's nothing more frustrating than seeing an area that's oiled a bunch of eggs and sitting in a field 300 yards away from it and not having any action. Right. And so, I mean, there's, we bring these situations up at the flyway. So again, we're in the Mississippi flyway. It's 14 states and three Canadian provinces. So we have, you know, similar regulations across all of those states to ensure that, you know, we are managing this shared resource, uh, you know, collectively across their migratory range. And the possession limit is a federal thing that's controlled by the Migratory Bird Treaty Act. So that's something that, I mean, and it's three times the daily bag limit. So when, when you increase the daily bag limit, then you increase your possession limit, you know, from whether it's three a day to five a day or something along those lines. But we we actively have these these discussions at the flywheel level. I know Canada just just is working on updating their, th- their thing. So uh, their regulations that... If you harvest a bird, you no longer have to have a wing attached to it when you're transporting it. You can saying, hey, if I have, you know, processed this down, that now is processed. You don't have to worry about transporting that with a wing attached to it in Canada. So they're looking at simplifying their regulations when we see these opportunities to simplify regs. And again, recognizing that you will have to get some type of consensus at a flyway level. And then we submit those recommendations to the Fish and Wildlife Service, who then ultimately decide whether or not that's going to be a thing. So. Again, so to the average person, it sounds like, man, there's too much government red tape in there. <laughs> there's too much government red tape. But it is nice to know that it is on people like your radar because you are not sitting here across from me as, as Mr. Government Red Tape. You're a real waterfowl hunter. You're a real hunter. You understand the application of getting you know that bird to your table. And when you look, it is a giant pain in the rear keep a wing attached when you're traveling somewhere and when you're breasting out a bird it's so i'm very happy to hear that that's one of the things you know back in my media days it always killed me when we were covering a trial because somebody would inevitably come in and say hey when's the jury gonna come back well that is an unanswerable question so having said that i'm gonna ask you the unanswerable question we have seen the flyway change in the last 10 years incredibly Massive influx of Canada geese, massive influx of different types of puddle ducks. We're seeing sea ducks on inland lakes sometimes. We're seeing sea ducks land in fields, for goodness sake, sometimes. What is going on and why is the flyway changing the way it is? So, again, it's it's interesting to see how things have, have shifted just in, you know, whether people believe in terms of climate and climate change. But it, it seriously is a thing that these birds, now they have these resources take for example we've seen an exponential increase in sea ducks using the great lakes over the last 15 to 20 years what's that tied to one they don't freeze hardly at all and two we have zebra mussels and quagga mussels in the great lakes which is an unlimited food resource so so long it's not what their ideal food resource is but it's unlimited so so long as the great lakes don't freeze those birds don't have to go anywhere and similar situation that we see with our canada geese we're seeing with mallards um for the last, I would say, five or six years, we continually get uh, feedback from Louisiana and Arkansas saying the ducks never came down. The ducks never came down. These are the worst years we've ever had. Meanwhile, you know, Missouri's doing phenomenal. Illinois is doing phenomenal. And Wisconsin, quite frankly, we've had really, really good numbers all the way up until, you know, the close of the season in most years. And we're just seeing, yeah, a shift in those birds that are utilizing the resources that are available it's not getting as cold as it was we're not seeing as much ice on a lot of our conditions so they're staying further north 
And then what that means is that if they've expanded less energy, they're coming back to their breeding grounds in really good conditions. And the breeding grounds have been really, really wet for the last 25 years. So it just, yeah, we're seeing this perfect storm of really, really good conditions and Wisconsin sitting at the top of the flyway, which is <laughs> only going to be good and better for us. So yeah, they haven't seen 18 million decoy spreads by the time <laughs> they get here. It's fantastic. But even here, we still have to, they get educated. One thing I've noticed that, that I've literally noticed is now so many people with ponds, subdivision ponds, retention ditches, they've got aerators in them. Now, you keep that water open, you're going to have ducks and geese. So not only are the Great Lakes flourishing with a lot of the sea ducks, but I am I wrong to say I'm seeing much more puddle ducks sticking around a lot longer because there's just more open water, whether that's man's doing or mother nature yeah i mean we we still see the biggest push of our birds that fly through the state in uh, usually late uh october early november that's when we see the largest push but again recognizing that if we have good conditions those birds aren't going to leave unless they absolutely have to and those are high snowfall counts so they can't go out to the field and find you know leftover waste grain from farmers and then ice conditions where they can't get into those those waters. So anytime that they have an opportunity to take advantage of open water and relatively little snowfall, which is what we've had over the last, I would say, five to 10 years, is those conditions. Yeah, they're going to stick around as long as they can. Talk to me about some of the negatives you're seeing biologically with the birds and the influx in the state of Wisconsin and, and the surrounding states in the Midwest. I mean, the biggest negativity is just Canada geese and the nuisance issue that we we continue to see is that, you know, giant Canada goose population, we have created a environment that they're going to flourish in, whether it's golf courses that we mow the grass right down to the water. So they're going to sit there, they're going to take advantage of that. It's we mow that every, every couple of days. So they have awesome grass to feed on throughout the summer, or it's our waste grain from our farmers that are out there. Hey, well, there's as much corn or soybeans that are left over after they've been picked that their population just continue to grow, continue to grow, continue to grow. And our hunting pressure and influence really has little to no impact whatsoever on driving those populations down. So again, how do you manage a continually growing population with the resources that aren't going to make the, make the difference? So when guys get out there and they say, oh yeah, this area is just not good this year. There's fewer geese around this year. They're just wrong. It just scout. That's the thing. The, 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 the thing with whether it's duck hunting, it's deer hunting, it's turkey hunting, it's goose hunting, is you need to get out and look for those birds. If you keep going back to the same exact spot year in and year out, and you say, oh, well, it's not as good. Well, those birds are still there. You just have to be able to find it. We did uh, our own study, and we looked at people that scouted three times or more shoot three times as many birds. Oh, there's no doubt about it. Yeah. I always tell people the hunting is the scouting. The day you show up is the harvesting. Uh, so I'm going to ask you a question we debate all the time in the field. This happens all the time. And you are a guy who actually knows the answer. to this. I have guys, they're like, oh, I'm not going to hunt an alfalfa field. They don't eat alfalfa. They, don't, they never land in alfalfa fields. I'm not going to hunt beans. Ah, they don't like beans. Well, they only like beans if they are neighboring a cornfield. Well, I'm not a big fan of cornfield as I am. I'll find an old wheat field and hunt the old wheat field first. Or rye. What are these birds, Canada geese and the ducks that we're hunting, what are their preferences in order? Are they grass eaters first? Are they grain eaters first? Give us some insight when we're having those fights over what type of field to hunt. Tell me biologically, what do they like the best? Where are they going to go first? Are they going to hit all the stuff? And how's it going to work? Because I want some insight this year when I can say, Taylor Finger the game ecologist told me they love alfalfa. So that's where we're going. Oh, no pressure now. Uh, no, no, what I would say early season, especially for geese, is uh, your wheat fields. Your wheat fields, right when our early goose season is starting, if our farmers are able to get in there and take pick off some of the wheat, right the first week or so of September, that's where we're going to find the biggest uh, bang for your buck in terms of Canada geese. But whether it's geese, whether it's ducks, we're talking mallards, you're talking wood ducks, whatever, corn is king. They Corn is where they want to be. You just have to, if you have to have the right situation, they don't want to land in a field that has high stubble because it's just, it's a pain for them to try to land. They're going to get, you know, avoid that, dodge that. But 
corn is why is corn king it's a high energy food resource that they absolutely love and it's one that they're trying to build up energy for migrating for doing those things so for them that is going to be the biggest bang for what they're going to do when we are banding geese or banding ducks throw out corn and they can shuck a corn or a whole corn of cob in about 30 seconds one duck can so they just sit there and they they'll, what? they'll fill that's up faster than me <laughs> so they'll fill up their crops and to the point and that's the thing is it if we keep putting corn out there the birds will absolutely pile in there too the detriment of anything else it's it they're addicted to corn so that's that's what they like corn is the key yeah. huh? but but most of us who are serious about goose hunting we're out there way before the corn's uh, available to hunt so talk to me about rye alfalfa wheat i mean wheat you said wheat is the key at the beginning and i think that's kind of generally understood and the closer that wheat's cut to the time you can hunt it the better they don't like wheat once it starts getting mildewy do they right yep no again once it starts getting tall it's just it's one of those those things that they don't want to have to deal with and yeah i it's it it all depends also on where they are in relation to a roosting site or a relation to water. So again, recognizing that hey, you might have this really awesome field, but you don't have any water within 20 minutes of it. Well, the birds aren't going to use it except for once or twice when they're flying between one spot to another. But if you got a roosting site that you know that they're going to be at, it, it might even be a subpar field. But so long as they can get there and safely get back to the roosting area. They'll hit it every single time. No, it doesn't really matter what it is in terms of the, the, the ag in the field. Are they eating alfalfa? Are they eating uh, radishes that some people put in as cover crops? Are they big on the grasses or do they get their grass from golf courses? Yeah, usually getting their grass from somewhere else, from some urban environment that they you know they know. And whether, whether we're talking uh, refuge area on the Mississippi River or we're talking uh, city limits, those birds know exactly where to go to make sure that they're not going to get shot and then to take advantage of the resources that are available. Yeah. I tell people, everyone's like, Oh my gosh, well you should, just, one of the things of hunters love to hear. And that's spoken extremely sarcastically is, Whoa, you should just come over here. You can shoot them. They walk right past me. Now geese may not be the most intelligent animal out there, but they're incredibly instinctive. And I think sometimes people play to, what they believe is their intelligence versus their instincts. And I think that goes to what you were saying about if you set up a spread and you're in a flyway, I mean, everybody's like, are you on the X or are you trafficking? That's, a, you know, obviously people say that all the time. I think sometimes trafficking, trafficking is an underestimated way to successfully hunt birds. I mean, we did it forever. Uh, I mean, in terms of like the Horicon refuge line or the Collins Marsh refuge line, People would just set right up along those things, knowing that they're going from one spot to another. You're not necessarily finding the X, but you're finding the spot that they're trying to go to and catching them somewhere in between. So, I mean, it, certainly that's, it's a lot less effort on something like that is, hey, we know that this is where we typically see them. This is where they're going to go somewhere. We're going to try and do this rather than, like I said, finding the X and setting up your decoy spread and trying to hide, make sure that you have everything right to have that opportunity to shoot your three Canada geese sometimes you're you get a big uh, better uh, result and a lot less effort if you can just find the place between where they're trying to be and where they're at all right well I'm blaming you brought up decoy spreads not me <laughs> so we've got the the former flyway ecologist the current entire game bird species ecologist what is the best decoy setup <laughs> It, it all depends on the scenario that you're in. I mean, again, there's what decoy setup do you use? Usually I would say the U shape is what, you know, with the U and then you're at the backside of the U, you're trying to find a spot where they're going to want to land and they feel it's safe that, Hey, we got birds on either side of me. We're going to land right in front of it. And you want to be right there. That's typically been the best, uh, the best one that I've had luck with. But again, recognizing depending on which way the sun's coming out of, which way the wind is, what you're going to have. And you got to be willing to change it up. You can't sit there for the five hours and be like, hey, every goose that we've had is flared here. Hey, we're going to move some things around. We're going to be able to manipulate it. And, you know, in the early season, you don't need a ton. You know, those geese haven't been shot at yet. So you go out there with, you know, two dozen, three dozen decoys. You can absolutely do great. 
versus later in the season, you might have to throw out a couple hundred decoys because those geese have now been shot at for, you know, 90 days and you're sitting there and I'm like a kid in a candy store because I'm asking you all these questions that plague me. Talk to me about, uh, avian eyesight. Do they see colors? What colors do they see? What colors should you avoid in the field? What are they looking at? Do they see movement from 300 yards away? When Joe's dancing through the decoys and they come over the horizon, is that game over? Talk to me about avian eyesight. So, yeah, it, they, they have really, really good eyesight. Uh, and typically with, like other birds, they usually see in the infrared spectrum. So one of those things that, you know, depending on what paint you have, depending on flock decoys versus non-flock decoys. But again, I've, I've hunted with people that have shot brant geese over milk jugs that have black paint on them. So again, just recognizing that it all depends on how educated those birds are and what your scenario is. And like I said, I mean, there's been in the field plenty of times where it's like, get down, there's geese, you can hear them, they're coming and they'll come right in. So, but also recognizing that I've been with people that like, hey, you gotta tuck your hair up. If you're with a, with a girl that's hunting, say you got your blonde hair is gonna be a dead giveaway. You need to hide that, that's gonna be an issue. Don't look up, throw. I found that when I was growing up, my dad, ah, we don't need to wear any face mask or anything like that or put any camo on or anything. And now when I do it, when I go out there, I throw a face mask on and I've had much more success that way. So just, but our forefathers shot a lot of birds in non-camo coats, you know, having a cigarette sitting out and, you know, they didn't really matter. But I, I think that the more, the better you can hide, the more success you're going to have because those birds are looking for it especially later in the year. Those, those, I mean, if you have gone snow goose hunting, those geese have been shot at for 10 months of the year, the adults. So for them, you have to have a perfect setup that you're not doing anything about because you have, you know, you could have two, 3,000 eyes all looking down at this one spot, trying to find, is this the spot that it's going to be? So always, I would say, you know, put as much effort as you can into the hide because those birds can see. Yeah, I, you know, I've always subscribed to the hide being most important part and then as soon as ducks flare somebody's jumping up and moving decoys usually but i think and and i i want you to confirm this stillness and hide is more important than really anything else oh yeah absolutely i would totally agree with you i mean again everyone wants to go out and buy the brand new decoy that's going to look oh this is going to be the best thing on the water where again i've hunted with people that have half their decoys are just painted black just to be a silhouette. So it's adding additional color versus what they have. But yeah, making sure that you are in a spot that you're not sticking out like a sore thumb, you're going to have the, the best success, especially if you've done your scouting and you know that the birds want to utilize that area. So yeah, I would absolutely say if you can make that seem as natural as possible, that's when you're going to have the most luck. It, you've heard people say, oh, camo is bad. Camo's a bad thing because when the farmer walks out and he's wearing coveralls and a red shirt, the geese will be 50 yards away and they don't fly away. But as soon as you have camo and, and a shotgun in your hand, they're gone at 200 yards away. You think there's any truth to that? Oh, there certainly is. I, it, so there's a study that was done uh, in uh, Chicago on Canada geese that they were putting white neck collars on and they were trying to catch these urban Canada geese. And the students, they were, they were trying to, you know, get to a point where they had this little gun that they shot a net out at them. So they had to get within, you know, 10 yards of them. And they couldn't, they were just, the geese saw these people sneaking around. So one of the guys threw on jogging shorts and a t-shirt, like he was a jogger in the park and got right up next to those geese and shot them. So he, that was, that was the gear that he had to wear then from here on out is those birds recognize this is not a danger. This is not a situation. This is what I see every single time versus just somebody wearing normal clothes, but they're looking a little sneaky. They're looking a little furtive and the geese knew. <laughs> Man, that's unbelievable because you have those scenarios so often and you got, you know, the, the men or women yelling at the person who's not wearing camo. Oh, I'll be tucked in my blind. Well, no, if I look, if I look more like the farmer they see every day, I'm going to have better luck. And what you're essentially telling me is there is some truth to that. Again, it is those birds that this, you know, we hunt for, depending on, you know, most people, the average hunter in the state of Wisconsin puts 10 days of hunting in a year. So recognizing that there's a lot more time that those birds are experiencing other things rather than that camo, what that is. 
So, you know, that they might see that farmer for 250 days a year and that guy's coming out, he's doing the same thing. He knows, hey, I haven't been shot at once yet by that guy. I'm not too worried about it. So. How is the eyesight when it comes to depth? How important is the layout blind as to how close it is to the ground or how far it sticks up from the ground? Do they see three dimensions very clearly? Or, you know, as you see with some silhouettes, they come in right away and those are only two dimensional things. Yeah, it not not quite as well in turn. I mean, again, people, whether you you like I said you're using silhouettes, but I've been the one thing that I thought was crazy and how successful it's been are those the A-frame uh Canada Goose frames that sit probably four or five feet up that you sit up and you actually can sit in a chair or stand up in the middle of a field, which to me looks like it's uh, sticking out like a sore thumb, but those birds have no problem with it. So it's one of those things they are coming across the landscape and they're seeing that they're not seeing, Oh, this thing is sticking way up. It's like, well, if this mass matches with what the field looks like, it's just one straight flat thing they're looking at. Yeah. A lot of people, and I mean, I'm one of them. I'll, I'll always try to hide in the fence line. If it's a fence line that's in between two fields, they're feeding on, but other guys they'll swear by that, uh, you know, a frame in the middle of the field. And I, I think again, it goes to instinct. And if they've seen it several times, they're wary versus if it's something new to them, they'll forego it. Because a lot of times when you are hunting, you know, the, the A-frame in the middle of the field, you're able to hide your movement better if you've got reeds coming over the top of it. When they get over the top of you, that's when I think they catch you the most. Right. And again, it's just like I said, when they recognize when mojos came out, they were absolutely deadly. Wherever you were at, those mojo decoys, whether you're talking ducks or geese, they worked out phenomenally. And now, I mean, I hardly ever use mojos because I think some of the birds have been educated to the point they're like, well, uh, there's six of those flapping things in this march. I ain't going anywhere near them because I've been shot at every single time I try to go into one of those. But we've had we've seen a scenario where if you're in a refuge and we've kind of done these learn to hunts and refuges where typically you don't see mojo decoys in those areas, the duck will absolutely pile into those because, hey, we know I haven't seen this in this area before and, you know, I'm not worried about it. I'm not going to get shot at here. So it's movement. I'm going to go out there and utilize it. But like I said, it's just what they are recognized, what they're used to. One of the things that I do that I've done or I've, I've started to try to do is hunt outside of the quote regular spots. Try to stop, try to stop the ducks or geese in a different field that they actually haven't been using. Oftentimes they will finish better in a field that they weren't eating in. That's not the X because now here's my theory again, trying to overthink it, but sometimes I'm thinking to myself, they're landing in that spot every day. They're going to be very, very wary when they come into that spot if something looks slightly different, if they see five layout blinds next to each other. But they may not be as wary if they see layout blinds in a field they haven't been feeding, but all of a sudden there's a bunch of ducks or geese feeding in. Are those are we overthinking it at that point or are those legit things to think about? I think it's absolutely legit things to think about. And the number one thing that we tell people to do is keep a log, keep a journal of those things so you can actually go back and look at it rather than being like, I think that worked the last time because I, eh, I didn't write it down, but I think that's the case. Whereas you can say, hey, we did this, we did this, this resulted in X amount of many more birds than this other scenario. So yeah, write stuff down, keep records because it's every single year we hear from people, oh, you know, waterfowl hunting used to be better in the 80s than it is today. And it's like, no, no, it wasn't. But you remember that one day that was phenomenal back in 1986. And you're like, well, hunting was better back then because my best day was then versus my really good days are now. But it doesn't compare to that one time I remember that one thing. Let's talk about the banding program. Um, I, I mean, so those uh, of us who put our time into waterfowl hunting, the band, the leg band, I mean, there's gear, the banded gear. That's what I wear when I'm out there. Banded, getting a band is a prize. It's a high, it's the highest, well, maybe second or third highest prize in waterfowl because neck bands and torso bands, uh, tarsal bands, torso bands. <laughs> That's what I call my belt, my torso bands, uh, tarsal bands. So when somebody says, what are those or why do you have those? I mean, and I, I, every one of us, wear our lanyard like a symbol of 
fried. I leave the stupid thing on to go into a, a, a cafe afterward, just in the hopes that someone will say, oh, look at all those bands. It's the top prize when you're hunting waterfowl. But I don't think many people, even those of us who hunt waterfowl quite a bit, understand the impetus behind it, why it's so rare to get one, why don't we band more uh, waterfowl. Um, I, I actually... I actually have an entire theory about how we could get more people into hunting if we banded more waterfowl, because getting that band, that top prize, really makes your day. It also can be the um, a point of contention when people are fighting over who shot the band in the field. That never happens, of course. But talk to me about banding. So, yeah, so banding... Uh... Banning has been one of those things that tr tr traditionally when we started this uh, banning, like back in the early 1900s was we wanted to know where these birds were going. So we get an idea of where their range was, where they were migrating to, from all of that. Well, now we have technology that, you know, we can throw a satellite transmitter on these birds and find out exactly where they're at, you know, within every half hour within the meter. So a band really doesn't give you the information that is necessarily for that. But we use the bands now to look at how we harvest these birds. So we, Wisconsin, we ban roughly 10,000 ducks and geese a year. And what that is, is every time we catch a bird, we uh, age it. Then we'll sex see if it's a male or a female. We see if it's an adult or if it's a juvenile. We put that band on there. We record the number. And then when that bird is shot, we can find out are drakes being shot at a higher rate than hens? Are adults being shot at a higher rate than juveniles? And what that does is then it allows us to monitor harvest on those populations and then tells us whether or not we can increase the bag limit or decrease the bag limit. Because if we're seeing, wow, adult hens are really getting pounded, people are shooting a lot of adult hens as compared to everything else. Well, maybe then we're impacting the population. If we're seeing that population go down, well, there's, you know, some correlation between we're targeting those birds or those birds are being shot more frequently than uh, than say drakes or juveniles, which are, are not as important to the population. So that's why we ban these birds. And, and the reason why it's such a trophy to hunters, and we've actually done a really, really good job as, you know, a federal and state government to tell people, because we want this information, like this information is critical to you having more birds or more opportunity in the bag. Traditionally, when we, we actually looked at this before, when you used to have to send it in, uh, uh, you have to send it in, I think we would get about a reporting rate of about 65 to 70%. Then when we said, hey, call us and we'll send you something called the band, and that went up to about 80%. Now, if it's now wow. everything's online, we're over 90% for people reporting those things. So again, it's been, it's a trophy. We made it, we made it feel like it's a trophy for folks. And the reason why it is a trophy is, Say, for example, in the whole flyway, we banned, I'm going to say roughly 15,000, 20,000 mallards. Well, in our fall migration, we might have 6 million mallards. So again, recognizing that the percentage, the odds of you shooting one of those birds out of the 6 million is really, really low. So just... So let's make it higher. Yeah. Well, it, it all comes down to for us is, you know, you only have so much resources. You only have so many people. You only have so much time to do this. So we try to find that optimum number that gives us the statistically significant amount of answers, what we need, what's the minimum we can ban to get the answers that we need to help inform our management. Because again, recognizing with all of us on this, it's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work to do, especially during this time of the year. And for us to do this, you know, July and August here in the state of Wisconsin, we got, we're trying to ban 4,000 mallards and 1,800 wood ducks all at the same time. And it's, it's just a lot of work and a lot of money when you're talking about buying truckloads of corn to go out there and ban and then have someone babysit that corn because the coyotes and the foxes and everything else and raccoons are everywhere. So it's, it's just a lot of effort to do so. But it's the number- Could Wisconsin banned more? If they wanted to, or is that federally regulated? No, we, we actually banned over what the federally num the federal number is. I think actually in Wisconsin, we would only have to ban about 1,000 mallards, but we end up banning about 4,000 so we can answer the questions of, uh, can we increase the hen mallard bag limit? Well, we had 70 years worth of banning data, and we could look at how did hen mallard survival change over those 70 years. And what we found is it didn't matter if we had a 30-day season, a 60-day season, a one-hen mallard bag limit, a two-hen mallard bag limit, 
that didn't affect what survival was. It was related to precipitation. It was related to habitat conditions when we had the highest CRP on the landscape. So that tells us right there that hunting is not the driving thing. And we got that directly from the banding information. And fortunately, we had such a large sample size that we overbanded on that so we could really answer that question. So in essence, you're telling me not only is conservation better and understanding the biology of the birds and the ecology of the birds better with more banded birds. The more birds you band, the more information you're getting. And there's just, if we could figure out a way in the state of Wisconsin to have more volunteering, uh, more you know outside contributors potentially, uh, the more banding, the better for not only the biology, but I think the better for hunting because there is nothing, nothing like seeing a brand new hunter out there and he shoots a bird or she shoots a bird. My daughter's first Canada goose she ever shot was banded. And that to me is priceless. She, I have her band on my lanyard and that is the most priceless thing that I have because it invokes the memory of my first hunt with my daughter. So more banding is, is not prohibitive, is what I'm hearing you say. Uh, it's the expenditure, the time, the effort that, that is put into it. That's the difficult part to increase banding. Right, yeah. Sample size is always, it's just one of those things. I mean, if you have a larger sample size, you know, you can, you know, more confidently answer that number. It's just when is it diminishing returns on terms of your effort, the time, everything that's involved versus, well, you are 99.8% sure rather than 99.6% sure. So that's one of those things that, and I agree with you, the number one thing that the Migratory Bird Program has going for it is volunteers getting out there and banding with us. That's, uh, there's nothing cooler than having a kid release that Canada goose, that little baby Canada goose, or they have a wood duck in hand and you're like, all right, you ready? And everyone's got their pictures or their phones out taking a picture. So then they can show it, share that with social media, say, hey, I was out doing this really cool thing that very few people actually get to go out and do. And, you know, everyone's happy when they get to do it. But recognizing that comes with a whole nother list of, of things in terms of volunteers right now, we're just we're dealing with avian influenza. So now you got volunteers that, OK, well, you have to have this protection equipment. You have to make sure that if you're wearing this clothes and you have you, hopefully you don't have a chicken flock that's at home because you could potentially be taking some of the avian influenza from ducks and taking it home. And then all of a sudden you have to euthanize your old chickens because they have avian influenza. So there's certain things with these wild birds. I mean, as awesome as it is, we have to take into account that there are other things to consider. How big of a danger is avian influenza uh, to the potential waterfowl population? Not very much at all. I mean, in terms of ducks have carried avian influenza, ducks and geese have carried avian influenza for decades there's just a difference between whether they're highly pathogenic or low pathogenic. And this one's an interesting one because it is killing wild birds at a much higher rate than say our last time was in 2015. It killed a lot of chickens and a lot of domestic turkeys, but it didn't kill very many birds. Whereas this one is killing quite a few wild birds, but again, in the grand scheme of things, quite a few is a relative term because there's very few actual birds that we've gotten across the state uh, in terms of com- to the population level. It's it's not a big deal. It's just one of those things, though, that, you know, uh, say you have a piping plover that gets it. Well, that one's got a really small population, so it could potentially really impact, impact that. Whereas here, you know, with waterfowl, we're sitting at 40, 50 million birds in the continent that, you know, if you lose a couple thousand, that's not a huge deal. The why... Uh- the Wisconsin Waterfowl Expo is coming up. The Fowl Life's a big sponsor of the expo. You're involved with the expo. Yeah, I'm uh, leading the programming committee. So uh, I try to get together all of the presentations that we're going to be doing. We're also hosting the turkey, pheasant, and waterfowl stamp competition. So well, that'll be there. So you, we actually have the competition judging in the morning. And then uh, we'll be displaying the art throughout the rest of the day so people can get an idea of what some of the best stuff was versus what some, you know, 12 or 13 year old kids submitted thinking, Hey, I might have a chance. So it's just kind of cool to see where the range is and what people really like. And a lot of the times people uh, see art. That's like, oh, I don't think that was the winner. I really like this one, but it's just cool to see all of that. Same. We have uh, dog training dem- demos. We have the decoy carving contest. Um, so that'll be a ton of decoys that'll be coming in. And then you see how the judges will actually look at those. They have pools out there where they got the birds in the pool. So you can see how they sit and how they act. 
So there's going to be a lot that's uh, that's going on, um, and it's just it's this awesome opportunity uh, right before the season starts, so the last Saturday in August, for people to get out to see what equipment's out there, to see what, if they want to try out some different types of guns, just to share a day with people of like mind. Yeah, that's it's going to be fantastic. Another reason I was talking about it earlier, I was talking to Kakich, um, that podcast is going to launch too. He was I was talking to him about the experience you can gain from the Waterfall Expo. Going to be some great stuff there and stuff is awesome, but uh Taylor Finger's going to be there so you'll be able to accost I mean ask him questions while he's out there too. And I can't tell you what an awesome podcast this has been. How interesting it's been to me. We sit in these fields and in these marshes and waterways throughout Wisconsin and all these questions come up in our mind and you are literally one dude who's got the information from a scientific perspective of what we're thinking about. So I can't thank you enough for coming by today. Um, the game ecologist for the entire game bird ecologist for the entire state of Wisconsin, Taylor finger joining us. Thank you for joining us. It's been real fun and we'll see you next time on the follow life podcast, Midwest series. I'm your host, Joel Clayfish. See you next time.